Well, it just occurred to me this evening that um, we've opened up quite a lot of material, really, in the couple of months we've been here since the day before yesterday. We looked last night at the kind of uneasy, fearful relationship we easily have with aspects of our experience. And as some of you have been noticing and reporting and exploring inwardly, there are a lot of implications to starting to really notice our uneasy relationship with life, with ourselves, with aspects of our experience. We were exploring this afternoon some of the patterns of push and pull that we get into around our experience. Those movements towards and away from and uh, in a kind of in distraction from. And those three particular pulls that in Buddhist shorthand are called greed, hatred and delusion. And we were exploring in this afternoon the way our mind responds to those. The way could call the, the, <clears throat> the response of demands, defence and distraction. Making demands upon the greedy compulsive response. Defending against the rejecting aversive response and distracting from the confused, lost, vague, unconscious response. Again, as we start to kind of explore that inwardly to the degree that we really sincerely uh, track that happening in our experience, there are a lot of implications the way we start to see the forces not just conditioning our life but directing us moment by moment. The way in which we see ourselves reacting kind of slavishly to the pulls and pushes, to the pleasures and pains of life's ever-changing vicissitudes. And in amongst these changing responses, there seems to be one most central feature of our experience. Sometimes pulled here, sometimes pulled there, sometimes in one kind of reactivity, sometimes in another Sometimes in some sweet moments of abiding, it seems, without reactivity. But often either pulling towards or pushing against or simply just not here. Lost in down one or other tunnel of the wandering mind or the confused heart. So amongst these movements... 
there seems to be one central feature. And if that's the case, if there's one central feature amidst all this, it would suggest itself as being really, really worthy of our attention, of our care, of our exploration, of our of the deepest understanding we're able to bring to it. And this one central feature seems to be a sense of me. It's me getting pulled. It's me pushing against. It's me that got lost. The sense of self is the most central feature of our experience. And yet, in some ways we could say it's the least well understood aspect of our experience. Often we may even have a completely unexamined relationship with our sense of self. Where we've just bought into the accumulated ideas of history and the various ways we identify the various ways we <clears throat> reinforce, come up with, subscribe to a sense of self. And we mentioned this before, based on history, gender, roles, etc. If it's the le- one of the least well understood aspect of our experience, it's also, in some ways, the least well as- understood aspect of Dharma teachings. And sometimes in Buddhist thought there's a kind of just rejection. There's the misunderstanding of the Buddha's teachings that just says, oh, self, there isn't one. As if like that we've kind of dealt with the whole problem. So partly, I'm going to try to unpick this as we go along, partly there's just a misunderstanding. Buddha never said, there isn't a self. When the Buddha was asked to really clarify what he meant, is there a self for goodness sake or isn't there? Somebody asked him. He refused to answer. He stayed silent. So as to not get caught in the problematic trap of there is or the equally problematic trap of there isn't. This may seem technical. Bear with me. We'll, we'll get there. If it seems technical, just keep referring back to whatever your own sense of self is right now as you listen. That's where the real exploration of this territory happens is in recognizing whatever seems to be informing your participation in this moment. Whatever shape the sense of self has right now. Sometimes that shape can feel rather rigid, restricted, narrowly defined. Sometimes it can feel rather fluid, rather open, rather um, full of possibility. So 
So one of the biggest problems with the way the human mind works habitually, the Buddha pointed out, was the tendency to only um, only understand in terms of black and white, this and that, here and there, is and isn't. Those are the two possibilities for every mind. Either there is or there isn't. And the Buddha wanted to try to avoid, or saw the wisdom of avoiding, these two extremes. There is self, in this case, which gives a kind of rigidity, a solidity. There is. Makes something absolute. And the more we explore our experience, the more we start to see there's nothing absolute here. There seems to be just a lot of shifting, changing impressions and movements. But if we go to the other extreme, we say there isn't. That seems to be too much of a denial. There isn't. Nothing. Nothing here. There's no self. Well, hello? What's this? There's something going on. Something may be a little bit clumsy to describe it, but nevertheless, hello? Some aliveness, some hearness, some immediate recognition. What's this? What's this? So that this kind of uh, apprehension of something going on here makes the inquiry into the sense of self something alive, something dynamic, something that can start to really reveal the truth about things, rather than the clumsy absolutism of there is or there isn't. So in that same spirit that the Buddha wanted to avoid those extremes, I'd like to really invite you, as much as possible, to put aside the taking of positions around who you take yourself to be. And to... Together, explore what do we mean when we talk about me, when we talk about some of the attributes of me, when we confront this mysterious um, here-ness that animates our being and that goes along with a tendency towards absolutism, a tendency to want some kind of certainty, to want to land in there is or there isn't. For the purposes of our exploration, as much as possible to put aside the positions and see what we find. One of the ways we we explored last night how we easily identify, we easily generate a sense of self around body. And we've been exploring the last couple of days body in its immediacy. Pointing again and again to body not as an idea, not as an image, not as a shape, not as an age, not as a, an image of ourself through our body, but as the vi- vibrant, dynamic, sensational, vibrational, immediate experience.
But even though we identify quickly, easily, and uh, in a kind of knee-jerk, reactive way with body, our sense of self in its innermost way is more identified with what we call mind. Mind is a very tricky word. I think after more than 20 years of this practice, I have much less idea of what mind means than when I started. We, for people that are so interested in mind, for a practice that's so <clears throat> concerned with purifying the mind, freeing the mind, liberating the mind, awakening the mind, there's a lot of imprecision around what we even mean by mind. So often we think of doing this kind of work as working with our mind. Our sense of self seems to reside around my mind. Oh, my mind's giving me trouble. Oh, I've got a busy mind. My mind's so full. Right? You see in those kind of statements that we're familiar with, the sense of identity, who we take ourselves to be, going to mind. But mind's a little bit problematic as a description. Partly because we have a lot of cultural associations. When you and me say mind, our attention goes up here. Right? Mind, if we look carefully, we start to notice that mind isn't really localized. And scientists keep on looking, they keep dissecting the brain, looking for mind and being surprised and scratching their heads that they can't find it. So getting a bigger microscope. It's got to be in there somewhere. And even if we, uh, we might kind of chuckle slightly pompously to ourselves and say, oh, scientists will never find the mind in, in the brain. Nevertheless, in our experience, when I say mind, I bet most of our sense of what we mean goes on up here. Now, obviously, our sense of self is bigger than that. But what, what impacts on our life doesn't just happen in this narrow spot up here. What impacts on us is wide, immeasurably wide. So maybe what we're working, what we're working on in our practice isn't very usefully described as mind with its associations of being basically rational, mental, intellectual. So sometimes we refer to heart, working on our heart, liberating the heart. Title of this retreat, Unburdening the Heart. A couple of people today have said they came because they were attracted to the title. Unburdening the heart. Little marketing uh, clue. Put heart in the retreat title, more people will come. It's true. Look at you all. 
And when we talk about heart, working on our hearts, developing the heart, freeing the heart, there's some kind of beautiful quality that's suggested in heart that isn't there in the word mind, that has a kind of a softness to it. We've been talking a lot about inviting ourselves into meditation, making room for what's here to be given its space. And that kind of language and the... the um, the, 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 the inclusive movement behind it seems to fit with the word heart. There's something that responds in us to the idea of freeing, of unburdening our heart. And yet, heart also has a bunch of connot- limiting connotations to it. Not least of which that the word heart also refers to this the organ that pumps the blood around our body, right? When we say heart, probably our attention goes here. But even if we recognize that we're not talking about physical heart, the blood pumping organ, we're not here to liberate that. You have a bypass to do that, right? <laughs> we think of the spiritual heart the sacred heart maybe we think of some some the, the capacity for a, a deep feeling life but nevertheless the connotations of heart tend you know of strongly weighted towards the emotional the feeling life and that's what heart most suggests to us and yet, the realm of our experience, what impacts us, what, what uh, seems to arrive in this sense of self that we're most interested in, is much wider than just emotional experience. This human experience is m- much vaster than just an emotional life. The Pali word, the word the Buddha used, which has become translated variously as mind or other times as heart, <clears throat> is the word citta. And the when it were, when it was first when when Westerners first started to ask their Asian teachers about the meaning of citta, often it was translated in a way that seemed to include both heart and mind. And in some translations, you're often in the forest tradition, they make the distinction, that, that uh, translation clear, as citta meaning heart-mind. And that maybe has the advantage of both including what we traditionally think of as the life of the heart. Excuse me. Heartburn. <laughs> What we traditionally think of as the life of the heart and its various emotional movements and what we think of as life of the mind, more kind of a cognitive capacity. But if we talk about our sense of ourself as a heart-mind, that's kind of confusing 
Either it jumps from one to the other, which doesn't seem to be very helpful. If we say heart-mind, how do you hold that? Or we kind of try to include both, which is better. And yet, our sense of what this is, this, this sensitivity to life, in which all our experience arises, doesn't just happen between here and here. Is more than just rational, intellectual, plus emotional, sentimental. So, <clears throat> this sense of self that we're starting to unpick at, this sense of self that we various think of as a heart or our mind we don't seem to have gotten to the or heart mind we don't seem to have gotten to the bottom of at all it may be helpful at this point to just remind ourselves that our inquiry isn't just an inquiry of so called mind meaning up here isn't just an inquiry an emotional inquiry how do I feel about that? Right? But is as much as possible an alive, visceral, immediate inquiry into the totality of our sense of self, the totality of our sense of participation in this moment. Just a sense as we explore together What are you in touch with right now as the context of your sensitivity to life, to contact, to thinking, feeling, recognizing, seeing, hearing? Where, where does all this seem to be arising? that we clumsily call me or my mind or my heart. When, when Freud started to study the human being, he also found these words a little limiting and, and kind of reclaimed from the Greek the word psyche. And psyche is quite good in some ways because it's maybe free of some of the associations that go along so readily with heart and mind. But I wonder when you hear psyche, what your sense of that is. Does it also seem a little up here? Yeah. Partly, of course, that's because our tendency is always to go up here, whatever we hear. It's interesting that the psyche, the Greek word, is the, is the root of the word soul. Soul is a scary word in a Buddhist context. Buddhists are allergic to the word soul. Buddhists freak out when we hear the word soul. It's very interesting. I don't know why, quite. It's something to do with 
the seemingly irreconcilability, the seeming irreconcilability of the teachings of not-self and the very difficult, unpleasant word, soul. Actually, I think soul is quite a good word. Mostly, what's good about it, we'll explore what's good about it, then what's not so good about it. What's good about it is it doesn't have the problematic connotations of localization. We don't think soul's here. We don't think soul's here. Soul is delightfully free of location. And it's kind of mysterious. So maybe we can just let that in for a moment. A sense of self that's not limited to body, that doesn't get stuck with the up here connotations of mind, that isn't limited to the feeling life in the way that is when we suggest the word heart. Something that's, when we say soul, mysterious, receptive, unfindable, and yet undeniably at the very centre of our experience. So maybe, this is a bit of a shock for the Buddhists among you, maybe when we use the word soul, we're getting closer to what it is that's here, that's experiencing all this. Something mysterious, something non-localized, and yet something immediately here. But, soul is also problematic. It's, it's problematic for recovering Catholics. It's problematic for any of, uh, any of uh, you who may have some kind of uh, unfortunate, uh, unpleasant, uncomfortable uh, religious connotations around the word soul. Soul seems to go along quite quickly and easily for us, culturally, with guilt, sin, damnation, and other, other kind of um, things that don't seem so helpful when we're trying to just explore who we are. So as we, as we as I mentioned soul and the the kind of the Buddhist discomfort with the word soul, it may be helpful to point to where that distinction arose in the Buddha's teachings, which is specifically the teachings of anatta in the Pali. Means an means not, atta. Atta comes from the Sanskrit atma, which literally means a kernel. You know that word kernel means like the center of a nut the the hard piece, the hard bit at the center of a nut and in the predominant world view of the religious teachings when the buddha was growing up the predominant world view was that there was an eternal indwelling essence in the human being like a kernel an immortal kernel to the human being and for instance, if any of you have been to India and seen the cremations 
of in Hindu funerals. When the as the body's burning on the cremation pyre, somebody, usually the eldest son, if uh, he's surviving of the family, well, at some point as his father or mother burns on the cremation pile, will come with a big bamboo pole and smash the skull of the... It's kind of interesting way to confront impermanence and death. Some of you have been freaking out about the presence of a skeleton in the walking room, right? Imagine clubbing your parents' skull with a bamboo pole as they burn in front of you. That's why India offers such wonderful opportunities for contemplation. And the idea behind that smashing of the skull with the bamboo pole is to let out the atma, to let out the immortal kernel indwelling in the human being so that it can, whatever, be reincarnated. (laughs) Exploring ever-changing experience the Buddha really underlined and really refuted the idea of an indwelling immortal kernel. Sabbe dhamma anatta. No phenomena in the entire universe has that kind of inherent, fixed, solid, unchanging quality about it. Sabbidama means all phenomena are lacking in that kind of solidity. To that extent, it's true when we teach or talk about teachings of not-self. They're pointing away from a sense of indwelling solidity. And we have a sense of indwelling solidity to our sense of meanness. Just like we have a sense of indwelling solidity around everything else. Any object seems to have, you know, seems to have some kind of indwelling solidity. And here, over here, this seems to have some indwelling solidity. So, in a conventional sense, the world of objects coming and going and interacting with each other these kind of objects, the object of experiences, and the, 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 the object of the sense of self. When we get to a subtle level where we're not taking conventional, everyday way of speaking about things for granted, we start to see that that solidity is just a way of perceiving. We start to notice experientially that everything's in flux. Science even tells us that moment to moment the molecular structure of the bowl is changing. and reflects that truth that there's no complete unchanging solidity anywhere. So then, if we're going to accept an entire universe in ever-changing flux, then yes, this too is in ever-changing flux. But there's a bit of a kind of Buddhist distortion going on where the thing we most pick out from life as not existing is this thing called self. And we kind of turn away from ourselves 
We deny ourselves. We negate ourselves. You have to see for yourself your relationship to teachings of not-self, if you have one. But sometimes in Buddhist practice, we find ourselves using teachings to get away from this sticky, complicated, troublesome thing called self. And teachings of not-self seem to be a convenient way to sidestep the issue. Oh, well, there's nothing here. That seems to smack of denial. I remember being in, a, in, a, in an ashram in India once where this idea of no self was taken to that kind of extreme. I asked someone, please, can you pass the salt? Which they did. I said, oh, thank you. They said, hey, there's no one to thank. <laughs> so I went, I went like this. And they flinched and they said, hey, there's no one to slap. (laughs) So it's because of this kind of um, taking one idea, the Buddha's refutation of the indwelling solidity, and landing in a position, there's no self, Partly we get into something kind of untenable, denying the immediacy and aliveness and truth of our experience right here. And then we get into discomfort around language that speaks of self and therefore language of soul. (coughs) So you have to see for yourself if you have a kind of trouble with the word soul, if we have connotations that um, distort what, what we're pointing to as mysterious, non-localized, and somehow at the center of all our experience. So having gone through the various possibilities, heart, Mind, heart, mind, psyche, soul. What do we find when we look very directly here? We seem to find a field of experience, a field of experience. Some of it intellectual, cognitive, the field that we would call mental experience. Some of it emotional. Which we might call the experience of the heart. Some of it visceral, physical, energetic, which we might call the experience of body. Some of it, so all of those we might call internal experiences, right? Because of our tendency to identify our sense of self with heart, mind, body, then the life, the experience of which, which we call mental or emotional or physical, we tend to think of as internal experience. But then some of our experience is what we call external, 
hearing, seeing. And then we end up with this sense of self where some of our experience we say is in here, thinking, feeling, and some of our experience is out there, seeing, hearing, for example. But let's look beyond that kind of dichotomy and we find that everything, whether we call it internal or external, is arising in a field of experience. As you look now, common sense that you're so used to from decades says, oh, you you lot are out there. But if I look with an uncommon sense, if I let seeing into the field of my experience, then I see, oh, this is where seeing's happening. Right here. Here within the field of experience. When I turn my attention to hearing, where is hearing happening? (coughs) In here and out there start to sound a bit clumsy. Actually, I can't really tell where the out there of sound stops and the in here of hearing starts. That whole distinction sort of breaks down. And I recognize, oh, hearing happens in the field of experience. As I sense into that more and more, I start to recognize that every aspect, the totality of experience happens here. In the field of experience. My direct contact with life. That I tend to think of as me. As mind, as heart, as body. My direct experience of life. Shows me just a field of experience. Aural, visual, emotional, mental. So maybe this sense of self, which seems to be the central feature of our existence, is a field. A field of experience. A field so vast, it seems, that it has room for everything that arises. Nothing's ever left out of that field of experience. Anything that's outside of it isn't experienced. It's not here. So for there to be any experience at all, of any kind, the field of of our experience, the sense of self which it's happening to, has to be bigger than the experience itself. So then I say, well, let me just meet myself in this way, as a vast field of experience into which and out of which pass thoughts, feelings, sights, sounds, movements, reactions, 
a field of experience into which my sense of my history arises and conditions certain responses. A field of experience in which I notice the various pushes and pulls that we've been exploring today. In which I get caught in some ways. In which sometimes I get caught so much that I lose touch with myself as a field of experience. And I get a sense of myself that seems to be in the moment defined by the story I'm telling and the reaction I'm having. And yet, sooner or later, the immediacy of this field of experience reasserts itself. And that particular thought stream or that particular emotional response dissolves. More than anything else, then, my sense of myself, my sense of what this is experiencing life, of where this is happening, seems to be a vast, amorphous, limitless, undefinable field of experience. What are the, what are the qualities? Of this field. The single most. um, The primary quality. (laughs) Seems to be one. Of space. There's space around everything. There's space for experience to arise. Within each experience. There's space. Just in the experience of seeing. We tend to focus so easily on the detail. What am I seeing? Oh, you and you and you and you. But hold on. There's a lot more space here than there is yous. The yous are just little bits and pieces. The space is way outweighs the content. And even within... As you know from your own investigation, the sense of you, you look kind of solid to me. And yet I know from my own sense of this you, called me, (laughs) that when I go inside, my predominant experience is of space. In fact, the closer I get to my experience, the closer I get to what's happening, The more I allow it to unfold, the more the detail and drama and content is revealed, is put into perspective by the immense amount of space around it. That's a relief. Sometimes seems like our thoughts and our feelings and our reactions and our sensations, are taking up all the space. We say, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so full. Is that really the case? Or is it that our our attention's got trained to focus on the content instead of recognising that the content is small potatoes, is just 
particles of dust floating in space. Our experience is most fundamentally spacious. As with all concepts, space can have some problematic connotations. We tend to think of space in a three-dimensional sense. Up and down, side to side, back to front. Space is going outwards or upwards or like that. But this way of using space isn't just about those three dimensions. They're also there, like we see in visual experience, but a a quality of inner space. A space that's somehow luminous. A space that's conscious. In fact, when we start to recognize in this way, the words consciousness and space become interchangeable. When we look, and again the invitation to apprehend our experience directly, the most noticeable feature of the space in which our experience is happening is that it's conscious. That the light of awareness is on. (coughs) Try turning it off. Just try now being unconscious. Don't be aware. No, stop. Don't be aware. What's here when you try to stop being aware? What's here when you try to close down the space? Impossible. Space is more powerful than your attempts to stop it. Consciousness is brighter and immediate and imminent in a way that you can't turn off. All those attempts to be able to meditate, all those attempts to try and be aware. Look! The light of awareness is on. Experience is spacious. Carry on like this till the end of the retreat. If any uncertainty arises, if any confusion arises, if any question arises, where does it arise? 
if any misunderstanding is there or any not understanding is there right now, where's the not understanding? It's just arising like a bubble in space. And like a bubble, just let it burst. Here we are, friends. Most predominantly, here we are as this spacious field of experience into which our life is invited, into which our heart and mind play themselves out. From this luminous, spacious field of experience we can bring a free relationship to our heart and mind. We can turn open, caring attention to whatever arises. We can allow our life to reveal itself, to unfold itself, to liberate itself. This is the invitation of our practice. May it be so for each one of us and for all of life. It's about 8.15, 20 minutes or so for some quiet reflection, for some hanging out in the spacious field of your changing experience, for just staying close to this luminous hereness. Whatever arises in it, whatever thoughts and feelings pass through. And then the bell will ring in about 20 minutes for a last short sitting together to end the day. Thank you. <coughs>